Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. Anecdotal historical accounts and anthropologists' reports about Aboriginal fire in the Great Basin have largely been overlooked by contemporary ecologists, according to an article published in the May 2013 journal Rangeland Ecology and Management. A literature review by the authors Kent McAdoo Bradschultz and Sherman Swanson shows that Native Americans actively managed fire, resulting in mosaic vegetation patterns that influenced the effects of natural fires. Today on the program, natural resources specialists Kent McAdoo and Brad Schultz from the University of Nevada Cooperative Extension join us to talk about their findings and why we should look to the past to help manage our natural resources for the long term. If you look back at at, at what was known of the, the history of the, of the Great Basin and, and the sagebrush system, fire was always a part of these systems. And there's a big debate about the size and scale of fire across time. There's a perception by many, and it, it's quite accurate in, in many degrees, that, yeah, fire was present, but it was always small fires. There weren't these large mega fires that we have today. There are some that didn't think fire was much of a, a problem at all because landscapes generally being arid and dry don't produce biomass at the same level that your wet forests do and so forth. So fire was never considered a big issue. And Kent and I both questioned this. I think over the last 30 years, we've probably both gone back and forth on was fire. At times, we probably thought fire was more prevalent. At times, we thought it was less prevalent. So we really started looking into it. Um, and it came out of, for me, it came out of the, the sage-grouse planting issues where, you know, people wanted to pre- preclude all fire from happening. And, and I just didn't think that was realistic. So I started going back into more of the published literature. And at first, it was focusing primarily on, on lightning-caused fires, the frequency of those, looking at the, the tree ring studies that have been done, which primarily focused on fire in, in the southwestern Ponderosa Pine Forest, the uh, Sierra Nevada Pine Forest. Um, the best way to date fires and, and how frequently they return is through tree rings. But in the arid Great Basin, there aren't a whole lot of trees to do that with. And we were finding some, uh, in certain types of systems where the sagebrush system merged into the pine forest, very frequent fire in the very limited records that exist. You know, there's only half dozen, maybe a dozen studies throughout the West that looked at that, and, and usually none of them more than a few thousand acres in size, so it's a, a, a minuscule portion of the total landscape. But it started to suggest that in at least some situations, fire was much more common than people thought. And then we both came across uh, a publication that came out oh, in the mid-2000s uh, called Forgotten Fires. And it was actually a book that was originally written I believe in the mid-1950s, by uh, an anthropologist. And he went back and did a lot of anthropological studies, uh, a lot of oral histories with Native Americans back in in the 30s and 40s. And those really documented the large amount of fires set by Native Americans on the landscape. And then he also merged that with a lot of the uh, historic journals uh, of early fur trappers and, and explorers and they would often describe plumes of smoke in the distance and distant mountains, distant valleys, and so forth. And he never got that book published, and it was really taken up by uh, Kat Anderson. She was an anthropologist and ecologist at, at UC Davis, and, and she really started to bring together modern-day ecological concepts with those historical concepts, uh, anthropological concepts, and, and really, and the book really questioned 
well, it, what it really demonstrated was that, that modern-day ecologists, many, not all, but many, tend to forget the human component pre-white man, that the Native Americans managed these landscapes. They purposely burned areas. They purposely had active management on the vegetation to meet their immediate needs. And, and we thought that was important going forward in, in the whole large debate, whether it's related to sage-grouse or land management in general, on what is the appropriate role and scale for disturbance in sagebrush landscapes, when it should be applied, how it should be applied. We're, we're definitely not arguing that, that fire should be used the same way it was in the past, but we are arguing that if you take those evolved disturbances, physical disturbances out of the system, you are creating a different disturbance. You, you're disturbing that ecological process, and in certain situations that can have very adverse implications. We recognize that in, in a lot of areas where we've had vegetation change in the last 100, 150 years, where we've had invasive annual grasses such as cheatgrass or medusa head become the primary species, you probably don't want fire put back into most of those systems. You may still need to actively manage the vegetation, which is the concept that, that the Native Americans had, active management of the vegetation to meet your societal needs. The types of disturbances may be very different going forward. Their frequency may be very different. But to completely take any type of disturbance out of the system is a disturbance in and of itself that's going to have, probably have some adverse ramifications. Over 300 different uses of fires across the country have been identified in the historical literature. It, you know, it could be anything from controlling insects to managing vegetation, producing seed, creating open communities, um, so you could see your potential enemies coming. But... And, and that's in addition to, to cooking, which just for cooking alone, they probably had fires going 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. But they also used it in their manufacturing of baskets and, and weaponry and so forth. And if you just think about today, how many campfires escape with the emphasis we have on putting campfires out, it seems fairly logical that you know that they had to have a few escapes back then. And some of those were going to burn small areas and some were going to burn large areas. And then just in, in manipulating components of the landscape to, for their immediate needs, whether it's producing you know, a certain amount of seed or, or certain species that produce large seed, they were going to have an influence on the landscape. Uh, definitely. And how will you apply this knowledge now? Well, that's going to be, be the tricky part. The world has changed. Plant communities have changed. We've, we've got new species in some areas. Other areas have not changed that much. And it's really looking and understanding what is the appropriate role of disturbance on the modern landscape, giving them the modern constraints, the threats of, of invasive species coming in, possibly inhabiting areas that are disturbed, versus if you don't manage fuels somehow and they continuously build up, the, the threats and risks that come with large catastrophic fires in the order of hundreds of thousands of acres. It's not an issue that's going to be solved overnight because there's many different opinions many different perspectives, and often it comes down to difference in, in, in the scale that we look at the question in the situation and learning to, not learning, but just eventually coming to some type of agreement, yeah, that in this situation, at this scale, we need to do something. The big debate is going to be what technique do we use to manage the, the fuels and the vegetation and what what are our management goals? What are we trying to manage for in the way of wildlife 
forage production for livestock, uh, other natural resources that may be out there, reducing threats to people and their structures and so forth, their infrastructure, whether it's power lines or communication sites, and any number of different things. I really think one of the big issues is managing that fuel load so that we get control of the size and scale of fires. And when these disturbances do come, whether it's fire or there's uh, defoliating insects that can kill off a lot of sagebrush, doesn't happen very often, but every, every now and then you can get large tens of thousands of acres of near-complete defoliation. Mm-hmm. So that when those disturbances do happen, that the vegetation that's left, which ideally are perennial grasses and perennial forbs, are the species that come back. Because when they come back, sagebrush and other desired shrubs will have the ability to come back, return to the site. After a disturbance, if cheatgrass or medusa head or some of these other invasive species are the predominant species that occupy the site, it completely changes the fire cycle. These are plants that dry out very early in the growing season. They're nearly continuous in, in their uh, structure. They're not Bunch grasses grow in clumps, and there's typically bare ground spaces between them. These other annual grasses form a continuous carpet and really facilitate large, flashy fires. We need to maintain those perennial herbaceous species, and it takes some level of disturbance to do that because they are always in competition with the shrubs. This work really asks the question, how do we maintain that balance? What's the appropriate disturbance regime, size, intensity, frequency, to maintain that balance across the entire landscape between the perennial herbaceous and the shrubs? Right. It's, it's complex. It it's very like... complex. Uh-huh. It's, it's, it's laden with individual human values. Right. And also the use of that particular area. You yeah. Say. You know, different, different areas have different primary uses. It gets very interesting when you start talking about areas that are designated as wilderness. They have a very hands-off approach. You know, that didn't necessarily exist in those areas when, when Native Americans were the only people here. There were groups out there that would not like to see any direct human manipulation of vegetation in those wilderness areas, but they're susceptible to the same same threats as non-wilderness areas, whether it's large catastrophic fire, invasion by uh, non-native species. It really questions some of the policies out there. Are, are they going to get us where we want to get with respect to maintaining the resilience of the plant communities in those areas? I imagine it's hard to find a, a wilderness area that doesn't have an invasive species. That's probably true. They're invasive for a reason. They, they, they have capabilities to get just about any place, whether it's, it's sometimes that they're moved by wildlife, sometimes they're moved by wind, sometimes they're moved by livestock. People walking into wilderness areas, they have mud on their boots, they pick up seed, it, it gets transported in there. There's many, many different transport mechanisms. It's inevitable that, that all areas all areas are at risk of some non-native species being established. The, the real question is going to be is what level of management do you do to try to control them or eradicate them once they do get there? I know these controlled fires are probably can be really beneficial, but I imagine they are also controversial. And They're, they're controversial for a lot of different reasons. In some areas, it, it's actually air quality and human health effects. Other areas, a lot of people don't like areas that have recently burned. They, they can be very unsightly. Were to ask a hundred people, do you want it green or do you want it black? I, I think every one of them would say they want it green all the time. That's yeah. probably an impossibility, but it is definitely what people want, and they want to try to maintain that. Humans in in general 
we tend to like things the way they are and the way they have been. We're, we're not always accepting of change and don't always like things that, that we like changing. You mentioned these insects. What are the culprits? The biggest one is, the most common one is the aroga moth. It's a defoliating moth that eats sagebrush leaves. And there's always a few of them out there in a lot of places, but just like any pest, you get the right kind of environmental conditions, the right temperatures, the right moisture regime, populations can explode. And when they get very large, they can defoliate, essentially eat all the leaves or most of the leaves off every plant, often in areas covering thousands of acres. And sagebrush is a plant, it doesn't sprout from the root system. So if you consume all the leaves, that plant is is most likely going to die. Essentially, it's been overgrazed, but it's been overgrazed by a a naturally occurring native insect. Across a a good chunk of northern Nevada, and I can't speak for other states, I'm not familiar with them, in the last 10 years, there have been tens of thousands of, and maybe hundreds of thousands of acres across the entire region, uh, completely defoliated or 80 to 90 percent defoliated by these aroga moths on those areas that had a good understory of those perennial bunch grasses and perennial forbs, they've come back as, as largely as grass forb grasslands. In areas that lack that, they've come back as, as cheatgrass for the most part. And those cheatgrass sites are very susceptible to large-scale fire because of the continuity and dryness of those fuels. The areas that have come back as primarily bunch grasses and forbs have the ability to really come back. They're not likely to burn in the next few years because fuel, fuel loads are fairly low. So sagebrush from seed left from the, the few residual plants that are out there, perhaps brought in by other animals, is likely to become reestablished and then increase over time, providing habitat for those sagebrush obligate species that need it. But that the most important part is that those sites had perennial bunch grasses and forbs, so they maintain their resilience, their ability to respond in a, in a positive way to that disturbance when it happened. We are just about out of time, but is there anything else you think is important for the public to know about this work, this study in particular? I think the most important thing for for everybody to understand is a hands-off approach, step back, do nothing, may not have the desired outcome you hope hope for. Something's going to happen out there. There's going to be a disturbance at some point in time. Nothing stays the same forever, and doing nothing is very seldom an option to meeting the vegetation, wildlife management needs that exist out there. None of these areas have had that approach for probably the last eight to 12,000 years since the Native Americans showed up. They were always manipulating their environment at some scale, some frequency, some intensity to meet their needs for survival. And the concept that, you know, there's this natural world out there, if we just leave it alone, it'll take care of itself, It'll take care of itself, but it may not have the outcome that society really desires. And just sitting back and doing nothing is going to have outcomes that that may not get us where we want to be. There has been a trend, Um, I think, where it's been really hands-off. It has been, and it it hasn't worked. It's been well-intended, but I don't think it's it's worked in the long run. I think it's going to work even less going forward because things are going to change whether we want them to or not. And, yeah, we're going to make mistakes along the way. And we'll make mistakes by doing nothing as well. Brad Schultz's colleague, Kent McAdoo, was interested in learning about ecology through the Native American literature.
And uh, as I got into the literature, wondering how they interacted with their environment in the Great Basin, I saw there wasn't much there. And I uh, thought it would be interesting to look at what they did, if anything, to manage their environment and what we could learn from that. And so in order to do that, I got into the anthropological literature. And uh, basically, it was, it was very interesting. A lot of, a lot of concepts were there that, that aren't addressed much in today's scientific literature. So it was good to try to put those together to see what, you know, what application we might have looking both at the past and then looking forward to the future in terms of natural resource management. And what was it that sparked your interest several years ago initially? Since I was a kid, I've, I've had an interest in, in Native Americans and, and the way they lived off the land and so on. And then recently, in recent years, reading various books about some of their interactions with the environment, that's, I suppose that's what sparked my interest. Coming through the literature, how much of it was surprising to you? And I was surprised to learn how much they actually used fire, according to the literature. Well, right, according to some authors. Even though we reviewed a lot of the literature, you had to dig pretty deeply to find it. But we do know that, according to anthropologists and ethnologists, that, that use of fire was, was widespread. And they certainly used it in sagebrush perennial grass communities. Uh, they used it for many reasons. Uh, they would use it to drive game, to improve their food base, their forage food base, and, and for other reasons as well. And so what would be then the benefits of these fires to the sagebrush communities? How does fire impact them, and are the benefits mostly positive? Keep in mind that when they were using fire as a tool, and then they also had fires that escaped, accidental fires too that got away from them. But during that time, there wasn't the, uh, the presence of the exotic invasive weeds that we have now, like, like cheatgrass. And so the way fire would work in especially the, the sagebrush perennial grass communities is it would basically take the plant communities back to an earlier, what we call an earlier seral stage. And that, in other words, sagebrush is not fire perpetuated. Uh, it's killed by fire, whereas many of the perennial grasses the, the, uh, and some of the forbs are actually, actually respond very well to fire. And so right after a fire, you would have a community that was comprised primarily of grasses and forbs, and those were native species. And then over time, the sagebrush would come back in. And so you get varying stages of first grass-dominated, grass, grass and forb, or, or wildflower-dominated, and then over time it would be grass and shrub, and then more shrubs, and some grass, and finally just more shrub dominance. The other thing prescribed fire, like they were using on the landscape, did is it modified the landscape such that when the lightning fires did hit, there were varying levels of fuel on the landscape. And uh, so even though there were certainly some large fires, there's no doubt about that, some of those fires would have been modified in, in size and intensity because there wasn't the continuity of fuel load and there wasn't as much of a fuel load uh, across the landscape because some of the areas would have been more grass-dominated, some areas were more shrub-dominated. And, and the bottom line is there was more of a mosaic on the landscape. And so say you are able to then successfully restore an area or a habitat to much of its native state, I guess. What then is the benefit of, of doing that, even if it may be only temporary? If we do it correctly, which means restoring the functionality I'm talking about, then it's not temporary because as those disturbances come, the habitat will fluctuate. But when it's in the early, what we call the early successional phase after a fire, for example, and if we've got the, the native grasses and forbs there, 
we have wildlife species, native wildlife species that are adapted to that. Species like pronghorn antelope, for example. As the shrubs come in, we get other species that are more adapted to that particular uh, phase of vegetation, species like sage grouse and mule deer. And then there are also what we would call passerine or songbird species and, and small mammals and so on that are adapted to the grass-dominated phase and to the shrub-dominated phase. So as long as it's functioning the way it should be, we're all right. But if, if we end up with dominance by cheatgrass and we end up with no functionality in the ecosystem, and that's what we're facing right now, that's where we're seeing the elimination of functional systems that over time are not providing what we need in terms of wildlife habitat and in, the ter and in terms of sustainable multiple uses on the landscape as well. What are the societal benefits from this kind of restoration and management philosophy? Well, I think the benefits to society and our culture over time is sustainability. Uh, we talk about sustainable businesses and and other sustainability aspects, and we want a landscape that has sustainable, desirable vegetation over time. We want it to have sustainable uses for production on the landscape, for recreation on the landscape, fishing, hunting, bird watching, and so on, and for the other uses we have out there. So, so the bottom line is sustainability. That was Brad Schultz and Kent McAdoo. Thank you for listening. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, offering breakfast Monday through Saturday beginning at 7 a.m., featuring quiche, granola with layers of yogurt and fruit, or a ciabatta fried egg bun with bacon, avocado, and provolone. And by the College of Science at Utah State University where students step beyond the classroom, participating in advanced research in the lab, field, and outer space. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information at usu.edu science. Here we come, walking down the street. We get the funniest looks from everyone we meet. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys. The people say we'll monkey around. We're too busy to Welcome to Science Questions. I am Sherry Quinn. There is an epidemic in Australia where chlamydia has devastated koala populations. And in the Venezuelan jungle, jaguars suffer from an increased rate of ovarian and breast cancer compared to other animals like beluga whales, camels, kangaroos, and dogs. Animals suffer from almost all of the diseases that humans do, according to Dr. Barbara Natterson Horowitz, author of Zubiquity, The Astonishing Connection Between Human and Animal Health, co-authored with Katherine Bowers. Today on the program, Dr. Natterson Horowitz joins us to discuss Zubiquity, a name she coined joining the Greek word for animal, zoe, with the Latin word ubique, meaning everywhere. In the book, the authors take the reader through a shift taking place in the way researchers look at our relationship with the animal world. 
using personal stories and detailing research dealing with health problems such as cancer, heart attacks, obesity, self-injury, fainting, venereal disease, addiction, sexuality, eating disorders, and adolescent rebellion. Dr. Nettison Horowitz's interest in the heart started her on the path toward veterinary science. I am a cardiologist. I've been um, an attending physician at UCLA Medical Center for about 25 years now. So I take care of human patients with, you know, heart attacks and atrial fibrillation and high cholesterol. I actually knew I wanted to be a doctor when I was a, a kid. I'm one of these people who just kind of knew. Um, I, I come from a physician family, so uh, it was sort of in the blood. But I, I loved science, and uh, I just it was kind of a natural destination for me. Heart disease is the number one killer of humans. Do other animals suffer from heart problems as much as humans do? So one of the interesting things I learned um, in researching Zubiquity and, and, frankly, in just spending time with many, many, many veterinarians is that heart disease is the leading killer, yes, of homo sapiens, of, of our species in the Western world, I should say. But heart disease is also a leading cause of death among all of the great apes. So if you look at... Uh, you know, chimps and orangs and gorillas and bonobos um, who are living um, under human stewardship, heart disease is, you know, a significant cause of death, which suggests that, you know, this is a vulnerable organ, regardless of, of, of what species you are. And can you talk about what veterinarians call alarm bradycardia? One of the, um, the ways that uh, my co-author, Catherine Bowers, and I approached the book was to look at important human medical conditions, or what we thought to be, quote-unquote, uniquely human medical conditions. Of course, we found out that almost no condition is truly uniquely human. A few are, but, but most are shared by other animals. Um, one of the things we looked at was fainting. So many, many people have had the experience of uh, seeing something awful, maybe a very bloody scene, or, you know, uh, maybe seeing someone having their blood drawn or getting really bad news and, and having this woozy feeling and, and sometimes actually fainting. Uh, this kind of fainting, which is triggered by an emotional event, is sometimes called vasovagal syncope. That's the fancy medical term. But very often some ex sort of high-stress experience in a vulnerable patient can lead to this uh, happening. Well, one of the puzzling things about vasovagal fainting is from an evolutionary perspective, it doesn't seem to make sense that an animal would respond to danger and threat and fear with anything other than fight or flight. I think most people are familiar with, you know, the fight or flight response to danger. But in fact, it turns out that we and other mammals and in fact reptiles and some fish as well are equipped with a third response to intense emotion, whether it's fear or danger. And that is a profound slowing of the heart, which sometimes can lead to fainting. Veterinarians call this animal response to fear or danger alarm bradycardia. Bradycardia is a medical term for a slowed heart rate. Now, even though I had been practicing cardiology for many, many years, uh, until I started working with veterinarians, I had never heard this term alarm bradycardia. But I began researching more, and I, and I realized that this probably is part of what's happening in vasovagal fainting in human beings and really may explain emotionally-induced uh, fainting from an evolutionary perspective. 
Is there an animal heart that fascinates you the most or is poorly understood? And, and what fascinates you about the heart in general? Yeah, well, one of the most interesting moments I experienced um, in my time just being, you know, by the way, I'm still a human cardiologist. I, I've just had the privilege of spending time with uh, veterinarians. Um, you know, I, I have to say that our local zoo has a medical advisory board, and, you know, they occasionally let physicians come and really help a little bit and observe. You know, zoos across North America are staffed by highly qualified, board-certified, very, very trained veterinarians who take superb care of their animal patients. Um, But I was one of these lucky physicians who got to spend some time uh, working with the local vets. And um, on this one occasion, I was asked to do an ultrasound on a, a tamarind. Tamarind are these little, tiny, adorable Central and South American monkeys. You know, they live at the top of the canopy of the rainforest. And um, anyway, the veterinarians had wanted me to help do an ultrasound of this little tamarind's heart. And on that day, they were sedating her, and I was trying to make really close eye contact with her to reassure her and calm her down. And the vets told me to step back, that my eye contact was actually frightening her and that I might give her something called capture myopathy. Anything, one, anyway, one thing led to another, and I discovered that there's this syndrome that um, can affect a, a wide variety of animals from, you know, monkeys to hoofed animals like zebras and okapi and deer to even shorebirds like flamingo and other, other birds, that when they are very, very frightened, uh, their bodies can be flooded with adrenaline, and the adrenaline can sometimes poison the muscles of their heart, sometimes their heart muscle, and there are even instances, though infrequently, where intense fear can trigger sudden death in animals. And the reason that this was so fascinating to me was that around the year 2000, a supposedly new diagnosis uh, sort of erupted onto the human medical scene. It was called the broken heart syndrome. It was actually a Japanese term for it. But it described a syndrome where human beings who were also extremely emotionally activated, it had been seen in people who, who witnessed a loved one being killed or Gosh, um, it was described in a woman who was left at the altar. Uh, It was described in a man who had lost his life savings while gambling. That sort of really high-intensity experience could trigger, you know, acute heart failure and occasionally death. Well, learning that this occurred not only in human beings but also in flamingos and okapi and monkeys opened up the possibility that one could look at a kind of phylogeny of, of sudden death, which is to say to begin understanding the, the susceptibility to sudden death or perhaps the tenacity, the, the ability to withstand it in different species. And so that to me has been one of the most fascinating aspects of this project is to begin considering a diagnosis that I had seen for many years and taken care of patients with for many years and understand it in a broader species-spanning perspective. Could you discuss how understanding the physiology of other animals could progress human medicine? Well, I think this comparative perspective is very important and is one of the most powerful hypothesis generators around. But whereas veterinary medicine really understands this comparative method, you know, they are taught comparatively from the first day of vet school, we physicians really don't think comparatively. Uh, when veterinarians, for example, when they're first when they're in school and they're taught about the heart, they learn about heart disease in a yes, a four-chambered mammal. In other words, uh, all mammals have four cardiac chambers: a right atrium, a left atrium, a right ventricle, and a left ventricle. But 
and we learn about, you know, Homo sapiens, who has four, you know, we have four cardiac chambers. But veterinarians learn about heart disease in a, in a three-cardiac-chambered reptile and a two-cardiac-chambered fish. And so immediately they have a broader perspective. So I think this comparative perspective has a lot to offer on the human side. And there's some concrete examples of how this might work. You know, one of the, uh, we, we have chapters, of course, on heart disease. Uh, we have a, a chapter on cancer looking across species. And inter- until I began this project, I had no idea that, you know, the most common malignancies that I had seen in human patients happen frequently in animals. I mean, wh- everything from Hodgkin's lymphoma, you know, the case in a killer whale, and uh, leukemia in a rhinoceros, but, but breast cancer. Breast cancer has been seen in pretty much every mammal in um, in which it's been looked for, including kangaroos and camels, even beluga whales. Um, but it was really interesting to learn that there are some species that seem to have a relatively reduced risk or almost negligible risk of breast cancer. That group of animals is what the veterinarians call the, the professional lactators. So, so these are the, the dairy cows and the dairy goats that essentially lactate from the time they reach maturity, and that constant lactation seems to give them some protection against breast cancer. But on the other end of the spectrum, I learned from veterinarians and from their literature that one group of animals seems to have an increased risk of breast cancer and sometimes breast and ovarian cancer, and those are the big cats, so lions, tigers, and especially jaguars. There, there are so many uh, aspects of this which are, are just so ripe for investigation and understanding. Uh, one of the most interesting aspects of, of comparative breast cancer is that there are some non-human animals, mammals, of course, by definition, mammals are the only animals that are going to also have breasts, whose increased risk of breast cancer seems to be related to this BRCA1 mutation. So I think uh, most people at this point have probably heard about BRCA1 mutation um, because Angelina Jolie recently went public with her prophylactic mastectomy, which she had performed in response to uh, being screened positive for the BRCA1 mutation. Uh, but the BRCA1 mutation also may be the reason behind the increased rate of breast cancer in Venezuelan jaguars and certain dog breeds. Um, there's a group of English Springer Spaniels that live in Sweden, for example, whose increased rate of breast cancer has been attributed to their BRCA1 positivity. So it, the comparisons go on and on, but it's, it's early days. Most physicians uh, that I talk to about this, and I've now lectured at many, many medical schools around the world, uh, for most physicians... This is new information. Uh, they're interested in it and sometimes very excited to learn that the diseases that they've been taking care of in human patients uh, for decades are shared with other, other animals. But unfortunately, because veterinary and human medicine have been so separated, at this point it's, it's really fresh news to physicians. And so it'll be interesting to see where this goes. In fact, there is a study mentioned in the book, conducted at Memorial Sloan Kettering, that has used human DNA to control melanoma, a deadly skin cancer found in dogs. The disease is essentially the same in canine and human sufferers, and researchers hoped the treatment would trick the dog's immune system into attacking its cancer cells. And it did, resulting in tumor shrinkage and improved survival rates. There have been already some wonderful collaborations between veterinarians and physicians, particularly in the areas of cancer research. Uh, It turns out there are a number of cancers that are biologically very, very similar between dogs and humans. One of them is osteosarcoma, which is bone cancer. 
And uh, it happens in humans, fortunately, rarely, but the human beings that it does tend to strike our adolescence, and it can be, it, it can be a, a fatal diagnosis. So it's a very important kind of cancer, and a lot of uh, time and energy and research has uh, been devoted to it. But it turns out while it is not uh, common in humans, it's very common um, among dogs, particularly large breeds, St. Bernard's, Mastiff's, Golden Retrievers also have a pretty high incidence of osteosarcoma. So there have been some collaborative research projects that have already started, some funded by the National Cancer Institute, to really understand the biology and the treatment and even possibly the prevention of osteosarcoma by looking comparatively. And the beauty of these collaborations between veterinary investigators and physician investigators is that the results of the research will benefit not just human patients but animal patients, that it, that it truly becomes bidirectional benefit. Uh, one of the other cancers that's shared by dogs and humans is, as you said, melanoma. I think most people are familiar with melanoma uh, in humans, but it turns out it's a fairly significant and, uh, and, again, can be a fatal tumor for dogs as well. And uh, there are a number of collaborative projects that are uh, that are underway regarding uh, canine and human melanoma. But we tell the story of uh, a collaboration between a very prominent uh, veterinary researcher. He's a DVM PhD who was trained at the at the, the most august institutions uh, in the United States. And he was sitting around a table one night at the Princeton Club in New York with a number of of MD PhDs. So these were physician investigators, and they all had, you know, were studying what they were studying, but at one moment, one of the most prominent physicians at the table turned to our veterinary hero of the chapter and said, do, do dogs get melanoma? And that single question led to a collaborative project that involved, it was really a kind of a clinical trial that involved dogs who had unfortunately come down with melanoma and humans, and it led to a, a vaccine that's now pretty effective on the dog side and may eventually come over to the human side. We actually use animals for a lot of our remedies, even rattlesnake antivenom, which is made from horse serum. There are so many connections already between you know, animal and human health around, oh gosh, um, medicines, as you say, in some cases. But one of the problems has been that, you know, Vets and physicians are trained very separately. There are a few medical schools that have veterinary schools right next to them, but most vet schools are separated from medical schools, so we don't really kind of grow up professionally talking to each other very much and learning about each other's profession and training and research. And so one of our, our points is that these connections are are many, and they go beyond infectious diseases, although, of course, we know that one of the most compelling reasons for veterinarians and physicians to get together is that many of the emerging infections that pose pandemic risks uh, come from the animal reservoir. So SARS, avian flu, you know, Ebola, um, West Nile virus. But beyond the infectious diseases, there are many, many things that we can learn uh, from animal psychopathology. I mean, there's an entire field of veterinary medicine dedicated to the mental disorders of animals, including compulsive disorders, anxiety disorder, self-injury, eating disorders. And it's just really a, a moment of opportunity for the human medical side to begin examining some of the, frankly, the condescension, I think, that has existed for veterinary medicine and to really begin embracing veterinarians as our clinical peers and 
acknowledging that what they have to offer uh, could be vital to our patients. In the course of your research, what have been your findings on depression in animals and, and how would one diagnose that? Right. There is, you know, um, certainly some literature on, on depression per se, but some of this has to do with definitions. Um, naturalists have described um, obser- observing behavior in animals that seems to look like human depression. Um, you know, Jane Goodall described the, the, the beautiful story of Flint and Flo. Flint and Flo were, were a mother and son chimpanzee, and, and Flo died, and, and Flint sat by the body and, you know, and, 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 and rocked and, you know, tried to, I guess, wake, wake his mother up and then eventually went off and apparently died. Um, but, but those kinds of descriptions, uh, Conrad Lorenz described that uh, in, in Geese, I believe. Those kinds of descriptions, um, you know, it's a little hard to know scientifically what they mean, but increasingly we are becoming aware that there's a tremendous amount of shared neurobiology between animals and humans. We know, for example, that uh, if you put depression per se aside and look at anxiety, that there's very compelling evidence for uh, separation anxiety in dogs, uh, for post-traumatic stress disorder uh, in dogs, and definitely a compulsive disorder, something, something that's called canine compulsive disorder, that's seen in a number of breeds quite prominently. Um, dogs who have compulsive disorders will, you know, engage in them, uh, things like overlicking, flank sucking, tail chasing, in the kinds of compulsive ways that we see human beings with obsessive compulsive disorder engaging in those same compulsive behaviors. Uh, so, so those kinds of, of uh, forms of, of psychopathology, compulsion, anxiety, uh, and self-injury, I think are better established than depression. But I suspect as good research continues, we're going to recognize more connections, even, even including depression. University of Utah scientist Mario Capecchi won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 2007 for his gene-targeting technology that allows scientists to locate and isolate specific genes in order to learn their function. This work led Capecchi and his former graduate student to the discovery of a genetic mutation that could be responsible for the hair-pulling disorder in humans called trichotillomania. Well, I mean, there's, it's a, such a fascinating topic. Um, you know, in the book, we looked, we compared trichotillomania, which, as you said, is this compulsive disorder where human beings begin plucking out regions of hair from different regions of their body. So the, uh, the eyelids, the eyelashes are sort of a, a typical target, but people can pluck out hair from any part of their body. There is a, a fascinating, and I believe at least, at least partly connected disorder that affects birds, particularly parrots, uh, where they begin plucking out feathers. And like a human trichotillomaniac, these birds can sometimes pluck out feathers until they're, they're really, they're almost denuded. Um, so what these connections are, um, from a genetic perspective, um, to my knowledge, has not been mapped out on the bird side. But it is interesting that uh, Nicholas Dodman, who's a, a DVM PhD who looks at compulsive disorders in dogs, has identified a gene for canine compulsive disorder uh, in Doberman. The Doberman engage in this flank-sucking behavior. It's a very specific compulsive disorder. And he's identified a gene um, on canine chromosome 7 that appears to be responsible for that compulsive behavior in Doberman. So this, this field of identifying the genetics for 
both animal and human psychopathology um, is really emerging, and I think there are tremendous opportunities to look comparatively at the genomes to understand the disorders better. Human-female fertility has been getting a lot of attention these days. Compared to many other mammals, women seem to have a short window of fertility. Zubiquity authors Dr. Natterson Horowitz and Katherine Bowers address this issue in the book and in their current research. We're so interested in this topic, and actually, we, uh, Catherine Bowers and I host this uh, Zubiquity conference where we bring together academic veterinarians and academic physicians to look at the shared disorders of different species. Um, our last Zubiquity conference, which was in Los Angeles, we looked at comparative infertility. And so we invited uh, a, a DVM PhD from the National Zoo uh, at the Smithsonian to come and talk about how he deals with infertility and uses advanced reproductive technologies for infertile cheetahs and elephants and many other endangered uh, pandas and other endangered, endangered species. It was a very exciting session because we had a, a very prominent human fertility expert who presented a case of, I think, a 40-year-old woman with idiopathic infertility. And then um, Dr. Kamazoli presented a case, several cases of infertility in different exotic animals. And then we had the human expert comment on the animal infertility and the vet commented on the human infertility. And it was a, a fascinating comparative conversation. So some of the same challenges exist across species. Um, you know, fertility is different in different species. We know, for example, just the number of ovulatory cycles varies significantly um, across species. We women presumably ovulate, you know, once a month. Uh, lemurs, female lemurs ovulate about once a year. So actually, when, uh, when the females are ovulating, it's a very uh, rambunctious period. It typically happens during the fall, and the males are competing like crazy to... Um, to copulate with the females. In our chapter on comparative sexuality, we learned a lot about, you know, how animal, female animals, uh, different species signal receptivity. And we questioned whether there may be ways in which human beings are signaling receptivity that we're not even aware of, some of the same olfactory cues that, that are used by animals. So I think there's a tremendous amount to learn by thinking about these issues uh, comparatively. One other point, which I thought was fascinating to learn, that... Um, you know, one of the issues among females in the United States is that increasingly girls are becoming uh, are, are going into puberty earlier, and it's a question as to why this, as it's called, precocious puberty is happening. Um, but I was very interested to learn that elephants as well, that um, many elephants are also uh, having a precocious puberty, and there are some interesting hypotheses, again, for, for why this might be. So those are the kinds of comparative analyses that I think are, are very exciting. In the spring, I had the opportunity to observe a herd of horses, ten of them, among a recently castrated five-year-old stallion named Finnegan, a stealthy 1,000-pound black-and-white gypsy cob with a long lion-like mane who brutishly chased the geldings away in order to frantically run down and capture the mares, which were inspired into estrus, or ovulation, by his lingering musky scent, still present from all the testosterone in his blood pre-castration. This is another area of research the authors of Zubiquity are keen on understanding. We spent some time uh, at a stallion breeding facility to learn um, about, 
the question of do animals ever have sexual dysfunction? And, you know, we learned that not every day is a, is a good breeding day, even for a stallion. You know, stallions are kind of professional breeders. But it was fascinating to watch the veterinarians um, sort of be very relaxed about whether, in fact, uh, it was going to happen that day or not for any given stallion. Uh, and, you know, we learned that whether it's erectile dysfunction or other forms of sexual dysfunction, th- these are not uniquely human and that there are evolutionary explanations that may um, you know, help us understand the disorder in humans. So, um, y- yeah, I mean, in terms of, of the cues for females ovulating um, or for males, you know, becoming sexually aroused, um, we, we learned one fascinating, uh, we read a, of a study about an animal involved called a hubara bustard. And the hubara bustards were, uh, the females were not getting pregnant despite being inseminated uh, with, with the male sperm. And uh, being fertilized, rather. And the veterinarian, I believe it was, or may have been a wildlife biologist, realized that none of these females had actually ever seen a male hubara. So they, they wondered, well, are there some visual cues that are necessary to sort of prime the female's eggs so that they were more receptive to fertilization? So they got out a, they found a, a, a very striking, I guess, handsome male who barbustered, and they had him parade in front of the females. The females who were able to visually see uh, the, the, the male uh, had all ended up having viable offspring. And so one of the hypotheses is that the visual cue of this, you know, this virile uh, male led to some internal sort of neuroendocrine change that led probably to increased testosterone or some other hormone that treated the egg, that primed the egg, that made it more receptive to fertilization. As Dr. Nadison Horowitz notes, wild animals do not practice safe sex, so they suffer from sexually transmitted diseases just as humans do. Well, we humans are not the uh, only animals to uh, acquire sexually transmitted diseases. If you think about it, it's really not that surprising. Most wild animals have multiple sexual partners. There are a few examples of species that may be monogamous, but most wild animals will have multiple sexual partners. If you Google condom use in pretty much any animal, you're going to come up with nothing. So animals obviously don't practice safe sex. So when you think about it, multiple sexual partners not practicing safe sex, uh, there's constant passage of pathogens back and forth, bacteria, viruses, etc. And so it's not surprising that animals get STDs. And, you know, it's, it's the veterinary literature, um, you know, has information about HPV and cervical and genital warts uh, in bottleneck dolphins herpes and baboons. Syphilis is a very significant issue for rabbits. But the story that we tell in the book um, is about chlamydia, sexually transmitted chlamydia, which is ravaging some populations of koalas in Australia. But STDs are very common, and and they happen not only in mammals, but there's sexual transmission of of pathogens in reptiles, um, in fish, in birds, and, and actually even in insects. The ubiquity shows we share more in common than we think with the animal kingdom. Science Questions is produced by Sherry Quinn, Susie Montgomery, and Elaine Taylor. Thank you for listening. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. 
I'm Brandon Johnson. This week, learn about the assassination of John Howard, a Beaver County settler. First this. The Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with support from a We the People grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. Utah has at times been a violent place, especially when distribution of lands has been at stake. Land apportionment in the Utah Territory was a complicated matter, and only the federal government, through the institution of a land office, had the right to grant title to territorial lands. The fact that Utah didn't get a federal land office until 1869 meant that before federal officials arrived on the scene, 22 years' worth of competing land claims were able to accumulate and create sometimes intense friction in the little towns that dotted the territory. In the case of John Howard, this policy turned out to have deadly consequences. Howard was a relative latecomer to the settlement of Beaver County in south-central Utah. The first white colonizers of the area were Mormons, who arrived in 1856 and immediately began putting down roots. For more than a decade, they were left to their own devices until a branch of the federal land office was established in town, an event that caused some residents to fear that outsiders would be given lands that they had been clearing and farming for years. When a small group of newcomers, including Howard, moved in and began building on lands already claimed by Mormon settlers, those fears were realized, and tensions quickly boiled over until they led to murder. As Howard was entering a friend's cabin late one night, he was gunned down by a hidden assailant. His friend scattered, and the gunman was able to get away. A few days later, a local Mormon man was arrested and held for the killing. But according to historian Martha Bradley, no one ended up being charged with Howard's murder. Sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Brandon Johnson. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, KCEU 89.7 Price, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.